This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. That ethic has been distorted to actually say that the person in religious power, your lead pastor, your denominational head, he's untouchable. Don't question him. Don't make him look bad. Don't do anything that would call him into question. And yet, women who are being abused by their husbands, victims of abuse, people who are powerless and stuck in situations of harm and oppression, you're supposed to submit, you're supposed to stay loyal and faithful, you're supposed to be subservient. And I'll just say that that idea has far more to do with the invention of a slaveholder religion in early American society meant to keep powerless slaves subservient to their empowered masters than it has anything to do with a New Testament ethic of following Jesus. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Here we are. This is our last installment for a stretch on the Bible as a story about power. We're going to transition next week to bringing on a guest and getting into a really interesting conversation about atonement. But today, before we do so, we want to wrap up this story, beginning in Genesis, running all the way through, climaxing in Jesus, that is trying to hold together the two threads of power as a good that is needed to help set the world right, and power as a danger and a corrupting force that is part of what is wrong with humanity in the first place. And this week, what we want to do is get practical and talk about, as Christians, what our system of ethics and ideologies and how we live is framed by this story about power. Yeah, you said something pretty interesting last week, which um, I had heard and we had talked about a while ago, but yeah, it just kind of has still stuck with me about Dallas Willard and about the Christian life being a preparation. It's about building this capacity to hold power. Can you like, I don't know, Maybe explain that a little bit more or? Yeah. So if you aren't familiar with Dallas Willard, he's, uh, he's one of my favorite writers, thinkers. He was a philosophy professor at USC for most of his adult life, but he was a devout Christian and spent much of his time writing critiques of evangelicalism and trying to really get to the heart of what he believed Christianity was to be. When he was dying, Late in life, he had one of his friends, another professor named Gary Black Jr., essentially to write a book collecting his thoughts on life, death, and essentially preparing for heaven or eternal life. And so Gary Black Jr. wrote this book. It's called Preparing for Heaven, What Dallas Willard Taught Me About Living, Dying, and Eternal Life. And there's one story from this collection of wisdom that actually uh, Gary Black told this story on another podcast, uh, one that I really love, called Seminary Dropout with Shane Blackshear. We'll put the link to that episode in our show notes. But Gary Black Jr. recalls this conversation that he had with Dallas Willard late in life that really got to the heart of how Dallas saw not just the Christian life here and now, but how he imagined heaven to be and what he thought actually the goal of life in heaven would be. And it was around the time of the horrible tsunami in Japan. And these two guys, Gary Black and Dallas Willard, are spending time together and they're walking and they're talking. And they're thinking about the horror of the tsunami. And Gary Black says to to Dallas Willard, where's Moses when you need him to walk out and say, waters be still like Jesus did. In other words, he's, he's thinking back on Moses and his role in parting the, the Red Sea and the Exodus and Jesus' ability to calm the storm and to walk on the water. And he's thinking, what if there's just someone who had that kind of power that he could actually control the sea and calm a tsunami from killing thousands of people? And the way Gary Black Jr. tells the story is Dallas kind of paused, stopped walking, looked at him and did this kind of like guru Yoda moment. And he said, interesting, Gary, what kind of person would God need today in order to give them the power to do just that? What kind of character would they need to have? Whose soul could withstand it? 
and the whole earth groans waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. He quoted a little bit of scripture there from the New Testament. And this idea was kind of an an entry point into a whole world of thinking that that Dallas Willard had inhabited for a long time, which was the idea that Gary Black Jr. had hit on something really important, that actually God did want human beings to have the kind of power that was so great that they could calm the seas from killing thousands of people. That the kind of power that it would take to do that that was demonstrated in Moses and more fully in Jesus is a good thing. It's, it would be good if, if someone could have and use that kind of power to protect people. But the reality is most all of us would be utterly destroyed if we had that kind of power. That if we're actually given the ability to control physics and control massive events in human history, that not only would we destroy ourselves with it, but we would destroy others. Our soul couldn't withstand it. And Dallas reads so much of the New Testament And the reason he quotes the passage, and the whole earth groans, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, he reads that that passage as saying, the whole earth is actually waiting for the kind of human beings who are actually ready and prepared to handle that kind of power. It's almost as if he's saying, the ocean doesn't want to be, you know, brought to chaos through an earthquake and overflow and killing thousands of people. The ocean itself wants someone who could keep it tame and keep it under control. The ocean itself wants someone who has this kind of power. The reality is, it's, it's us, it's our inability to handle this power that is, the, that is the problem. So, I'm struggling with that a little bit. So, we're, we're literally supposed to be able to calm oceans? That just seems kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, don't don't get too carried away on the example or the... Uh, I guess the, where that leads me then is like the whole kind of debates around like if God's here, why didn't he, you know, stop these waves or whatever? Like aren't some things just like, you know, if there was, let's just say like, uh, <laughs> this is a really bad example, but let's just say those waves had like taken out the Nazis. Let's say it just took out the Nazis. We would be like, oh, look, like look at how the wave acted and it did this. But then when it does something bad, we're like, oh, look how, you know, where's God when it, you know, I'm just saying, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, that just feels like that same argument around like we're supposed to control or God's supposed to like control nature. Aren't some things just natural? Don't they just like happen? I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'm with you on the power uh, argument of being the people that can hold that power. It just seems like a weird end to be like, they'd be the ones that would like would control waves then. Yeah, I think I get what you're coming from. Uh, uh, one important piece, and we, we've touched on this in an early episode, but I, I don't think we talk about it enough in kind of evangelical world, is that one of the very first pivotal stories in the story of the Bible is the flood story and the promise that God makes to Noah following the flood, which is that he will never do something like that again, which is, means that God is constraining himself throughout the rest of human history to work within humanity rather than over the top of humanity. He promises he will never again intervene with a massive destructive intervention. He won't wipe out people. Rather, he will work within the people through the people that are there. That's a massive philosophical point that is made very close to the beginning of the scriptures that we don't spend a lot of time talking about, but it's one of the foundations for everything else that happens in the Bible, which is the reason God creates a people through Abraham and then Israel and eventually Jesus and the church to be able to partner with him to bring about redemption in the world is because God has actually, by grace, constrained himself to not overtly get rid of all the problems that are within humanity in the first place. Because if he did, we would all be dying all the time. Does that make sense? So ironically, there's actually connection here between a flood and the tsunami is that God backs out in Genesis 9 in large part from the kind of personal divine intervention that we oftentimes say that we truly want. We oftentimes pray or say out loud in conversation that we wish God would step in and intervene. 
But we forget that what that means is if God were to truly step in to break the norms of nature to enact justice in human history, then most all of us would be killed as a result. Because most of us aren't just victims, we're guilty as well. We are we are perpetrators and oppressors as well. So we forget that piece. So part of what the whole Noah story is instilling is it's reminding us we don't actually want God to intervene all of the time. We want God actually to allow human beings to enact history. What the biblical story is, is a kind of perfect compromise where God refuses to discard human history, vows to work within human history, but then subjects himself to the pain and suffering of human history to bring about good ends through it, mainly in the, in the person of Jesus. And so what Dallas Willard is touching on is that all the way back to the story of, of Noah, human history depends in large part on human beings. And of course, we believe that through Jesus, God intervened into human history. But the whole basis for the idea of an incarnation is that that God had already promised not to intervene in human history apart from human history itself. That's the basis for the incarnation, is a human being has to be the one to set things right in human history. So this is kind of like getting off into the deep end, but the idea is... Well, no, no, it's not, because that you're saying... It had to be a human, and so that was Jesus. Jesus was a human, but we always call him just God, so we lose the human side of that. And I guess that my next question is sort of around, you know, getting back to last episode, we talked about to have this power, and it's kind of what we're saying here is like what Dallas Willard's talking about. To have this power, you essentially need to persevere through these like trials to prove that you are, that you, and, and that's part of the preparation for having this power. And so Jesus was able to do that. And I guess the question is like, do we need to do what Jesus did in the sense of preparing ourselves to have that power? If we're supposed to have the power like like, like he did, um, are we supposed to prepare ourselves and go through those same trials? And like, what does that even, what does that even mean, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really important question. And, you know, if, if you look at Dallas Willard's uh, work as a whole, the divine conspiracy and his work on spiritual disciplines and I mean, he's got so much, so much writing and articles and books. Uh, one of the, the core themes is that God will not make us become something that we have never chosen willfully to become. And so that's one of the core ideas behind his view of heaven. So when we talk about this idea of developing capacity for power, I first just want to say Dallas Willard didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. You can go all the way back to Irenaeus. He was a second century bishop, one of the first theologians in church history. And, uh, and he picked up on this theme. Do you remember when we were talking about Adam and Eve? And I pointed out that when you read the story, it really sounds as if one of the motifs that the author is playing off of is the idea of childhood innocence. Like it sounds like Adam and Eve hmm. go from a state of being innocent like kids, sort of naive, and, you know, they don't know what's what's wrong and what's bad. And they lose that innocence, which is captured with the idea that they realize they were naked and all of a sudden they need clothes. And we talked about how that, like, that is a phenomenon that happens with every human being throughout human history is you, you go from a time when you're a kid and you feel no shit. Literally. You literally <laughs> go through a time when you realize you don't have clothes on. <laughs> totally. So literally almost 2,000 years ago, uh, Irenaeus, he developed an idea that Adam and Eve were essentially children and that the trajectory of human history was to mature to the point of ruling over angels. So remember, we mentioned a verse in 1 Corinthians 6. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 3, where Paul says to the church, don't you know that we will judge angels? And he's using that in reference to a dispute going on between two different Christians. And... The idea here is that in the end, the end game is great power. We've talked about this before. We'll keep talking about this. The end game is great power, but the beginning to Irenaeus, uh, it's, it's similar to Dallas Willard's idea. The beginning is a kind of childlike immaturity or childish immaturity. And the scope of human history is parallel to the scope of each human life which is the development of a more mature capacity for self-leadership and responsible governance. 
And so to Irenaeus, the purpose of Jesus' incarnation wasn't just to forgive sin, but to offer a model of the fully mature human, enable humanity to become more like him. So this is where you see Jesus is a second Adam. The first Adam was immature, and the second Adam, the new model human, in the beginning of the human rulership project, is a mature human. He's the mature example of what we are all to be. And so Irenaeus believed in this kind of progressive divinization of humanity that would go on forever, where we go from being like a naive child to being like God in our wisdom, maturity, and our capacity to handle power. And that's exactly what Dallas Willard is hitting on. And what he does is he projects that idea that human life and particularly the Christian life is a call to develop the capacity to handle the kind of power, the ruling the world kind of power, that would be needed to participate in setting the world right. He projects that idea onto the idea of heaven, an afterlife, a kind of eternal existence. Okay, so this isn't necessarily something that's going to happen in our 80 years here. But that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to continue trying to become this person that can hold that power. What, what Willard does is he, he kind of refuses to separate the two. And he says, listen, if you have shown in all of your actions, your choices, your behaviors, that you truly don't want something in your entire existence in this life, you have proven that you don't want to become something or you don't want to accomplish something. Why would you ever think that heaven would be God making you do that thing? And he refuses to separate the idea of a heaven where we're with God and are finally able to become what we've always wanted to become, finally able to become what we are always meant to be. He refuses to separate that idea from what we actually truly desire to do and be. And so his point is, listen, if we actually desire to be, be and become the kind of people who like Christ can handle ultimate power and use it only for good on behalf of other people, then God will surely bring that about in us. But if we are the kind of people who actually don't want that at all, and who either want to hold on to power to use it for our own good, or don't want to participate in a process of transformation whatsoever, why in the world would we think that God would someday perform a magic trick uh, in, in the language of, I think, both Willard and Gary Black Jr., a cosmic car wash that would just magically change us from who we've always been and who we've always wanted to be to somehow then become who God wants us to be. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) I was going to say, I I think that happens because of, like, what we view salvation to be, because the two are sort of separated, right? There's like this personal, you were saved. And so what are we going to do? I mean, you're saved. So that means heaven for you, right? Because it comes back to this like dichotomy of heaven or hell and you made the right decision. And so, and that's what salvation is about is making this right decision. And so you're going to be there. So now we just need to figure out like, okay, then it must mean God is going to, we know heaven's going to be this amazing. uh, Even if we come with the like idea that heaven is coming to earth and it's going to change earth or whatever. Like, it's going to be this amazing place. It's an amazing um, thing. So it must mean that God's going to transform these pretty terrible, not, you know, terrible, but like pretty terrible people that uh, didn't really want this and didn't show signs of wanting this must mean it's going to transform them. So I think it comes back to just we've missed 
salvation. We, we misunderstand this kind of corporate cultural, like changing of, um, the systems of the world and like setting things to right. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And so, I mean, we're talking about Dallas Willard here because he has a particular idea of salvation and the Christian life in terms of power. But listen, his main point is something that everybody needs to hear, which is we cannot separate a Christian idea of salvation from what it is we actually truly desire. If we don't actually right now in this moment in this life desire, at least in part, at least in a flawed form, to be and become and do what salvation is, then we're fooling ourselves to think that we are somehow inheritors of that same salvation. So we've been talking about power and, and we, we touched on how there's this great misconstrual of the gospel that it's equally universally good news for everybody. And we've tried to diminish the power dynamics at play. We've tried to diminish the justice at play in salvation in God's work in the world. But do you remember wee little Zacchaeus? Little guy has to climb up in the tree to see Jesus. I remember him. And there's this story that stands out to me, and I feel like I wish we talked about it more. It's in Luke chapter 19. This little guy Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he's short and he can't see over the crowd. So he, he runs ahead and he climbs a tree so he can see Jesus coming from a ways away. And Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. And this guy, Zacchaeus, is the chief tax collector. And what that means is he is one of the chief traders in Jewish society who has partnered with the Roman Empire to take advantage of his own people to rob them of their money. He was wealthy, it says, because of his betrayal as a tax collector working for the Romans. Give me a modern day example. Perhaps a closer example is imagine, say you're Polish and you're living in Poland in a time where Nazi Germany has occupied Poland. You have been invaded by a foreign government and a foreign army. And one of your neighbors, Polish neighbors, goes and works for the Nazi government to come collect the last little bits of your belongings and hands most of them over to the government, to the Nazis, but keeps bit for himself and becomes essentially not only a functioning Nazi, but a wealthy functioning Nazi because of what he's stolen from the oppressed poor. So you can imagine how you feel if you're a Polish victim to that neighbor. But Jesus says he must stay at his house. And so there's all this drama because he's staying with this sinner, this traitor. But then it says, it doesn't say how this happened or whether there's a conversation that occurred or uh, what convicted Zacchaeus. It just says, but Zacchaeus stood up And said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So what does he do? He not just confesses that he's been a greedy crook. He doesn't just repent and say he's not going to do it anymore. He pays restitution. He actually takes upon himself the, the cost of making things right. He gives half of his stuff to the poor and promises to pay back, not just pay back his victims, but pay back four times the amount that he stole from his victims. In other words, he's giving restitution plus some, plus for the damages. And how does Jesus respond? He says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So there's a picture here where it's, it's actually very similar to the story of the rich young ruler. But Zacchaeus in this story actually chooses the good path. The rich young ruler can't accept the cost. He doesn't want to pay restitution. He can't face how much he's actually been complicit with injustice. And so he walks away sad. But here Zacchaeus owns up to it and actually faces up to his injustice. And he's willing to pay the price to it. And Jesus calls this salvation. Now, I think we should say this is, this is actually good news for Zacchaeus. 
But why is it good news? It's not prosperity good news. <laughs> he just got poor. Zacchaeus just went from being a rich dude to a poor dude. He actually gave away all of his wealth that gave him privilege in society. And he actually just gave up his status in society. He opened himself up to public humiliation. It's called salvation because what was once an unjust system of balances where, where one unjust figure had, had a lot and his neighbors, his Jewish counterparts had little, that system had just been righted to where the person who had a lot was willing to give it up and give it to the poor. That turning of the tables, that f leveling of the playing field is what Jesus deemed salvation. Yeah, not that happening someday in some future place. Um, or even just, you know, we talk about salvation being Zacchaeus is now going to be in the good place when he dies and not the bad place. That's not salvation in Jesus's mind. It was the leveling of the playing fields now. It was the it was the righting the wrong and actually changing the world and the systems of the world and politics now. That was correcting and changing that. So my, my question, though, is how do you know if you're Zacchaeus or if you're the... I think... Here, I, I was going to say, or, or if you're the one that's getting uh, screwed by Zacchaeus. And I think it's unnecessary to say the latter because the people that are getting screwed by the system and by the powerful, they know who they are and they know that's happening. So that's not really the question. I guess the question is more for the powerful because I think we're living in a weird time where what we just saw with the 81% is 81% of the church essentially in America feels persecuted. They feel like they are the minority when in reality, they're the most majority group we have of any kind, religion, religious or not. They're the largest majority, voting majority that we have in this country. But you heard things around the time of the election that really made it seem like they thought that their way of life was being threatened and that you know their morals and their convictions were being threatened and needed to fight back for for those things and so how do we like fix this when the powerful don't realize they're the powerful yeah i think that's so much of the question you know andy crouch who's a really sharp thinker and writer he wrote a book years back called playing god and it's about power one of the main points in his book he talks about the idea of mapping power and he says both the powerless and the powerful can be blind to the power that they are holding and that blindness to power inevitably causes problems. If we are blind to the power that we have, we neglect both the good that we are capable of doing and I think more significantly, we are blind to all of the danger, all of the negative that we are capable of doing because of that power. And one of the universal rules of social dynamics is that the more power one has, the more blinded one becomes to his power. I remember there's an article uh, early on when in Trump's presidency that was coming from a social science standpoint, connecting the dots between Trump's life of power. I mean, long before he was president, he's been a very powerful figure. He's been habituated to being the most powerful man in the room for decades. It, it connected that with his apparent lack of basic human empathy. I mean, I don't know if you just saw it, but uh, just a few, just this last week, Trump had a meeting with some of the students from the Parkland shooting in Florida. And it was a meeting about uh, the safety in schools and gun control. And some of the White House photographers caught a picture of Trump holding a napkin that had to remind him to say things like, I hear you. And to ask basic questions, basic human questions. And again, Trump's not the only one who struggles with this stuff. He's just at the center of our current spotlight. But what it was reminding us was that the man has actually lost his capacity for basic human interaction and basic human empathy. And there have been studies for years that show that that is one of the core consequences of a long-term habitual possession of power. Because a lot of what power does is it seals one off from consequences of your actions. 
So Trump has lived a kind of life, and so many other people out there like Trump who have had the kind of power that he has had, have lived a kind of life where you can be rude, you can cut someone off, you can be a jerk to someone in a meeting, and because you're the most powerful person in that room, you never really have to face any consequences for that behavior. You're essentially invulnerable to what most human beings are highly vulnerable to, which is that if we don't treat people well or treat people the way they want to be treated, we're going to suffer from it. When you have tons and tons of social power, you are essentially immune to that natural consequence. And one of the psychological results is that because you become immune to the consequences, the ways that people will react to your behavior, you become less and less empathetic to the ways that your behavior actually affects other people. And you can actually get to the point where you have lost the capacity for basic empathy whatsoever. And this is just one example of the way that the possession of great power actually does have a truly corrupting force on individuals. But it's especially corrupting for those that either don't recognize or refuse to acknowledge how much power they have. There have been examples throughout history of people who had great power, but admitted it and recognized it and therefore wanted to steward it as best as they could. But when what we do is we refuse to admit the power we have, even if we're not someone like Trump, even if we're just a normal everyday person who has, say, power over their kids or power over a coworker in the workplace or a little bit of social power that you can gain and muster on social media, if we refuse to acknowledge in all these various situations the ways that we have power and the ways that that power allows us to interact with others in ways that could be detrimental, the psychological reality is, is that will begin to erode our character. So give me, give me like a practical example. It was helpful last week when you shared your personal experiences with like even just like the prayer circle at church, right? And having to be, I remember that feeling of like, oh, I need to close this thing because I'm supposed to like be the leader here. And if I let, you know, it's just like, it's these little things, little voices in your head um, even. But then there's like other ones just with um, talking over other people or, or so give me like, I don't know, give us like some practical examples, I guess. Yeah, totally. So uh, at risk of embarrassing myself, I'll I'll share a story of my own where I, I learned this the hard way. So, You know, I've said this before, but I am a white, heterosexual male, upper middle class, college educated, and then got to a place of leadership and even, you know, vocational position in the church. All of those figures mean that especially in church world, in Christian circles, I held and still continue to hold in some sense an immense amount of power. But I didn't used to think in these terms. And so there's a stretch where I uh, was leading a, a small group, you know, like a, a Christian community group, Bible study, where we'd meet weekly and a uh, great group of people. And uh, but I was I was clearly the leader. I had started the group and uh, and I was almost always the one to, you know, decide what we we're going to study and lead the conversation. And I led that group for, I don't know, a year, two years, something like that. And I got to the point where I, for various reasons, decided that I I needed to not be the leader anymore. And, you know, I think I was probably tired and some other things, but at a subconscious level, I started becoming aware of some of the power dynamics that even at that time, I don't think I I talked in terms of saying, you know, power dynamics, but I I started to notice things. And, um, and what I want to do is I was still committed to this group of people. I still wanted to be in community, still wanted to be a part of these meetings. I just didn't want to be the center of it. And I wanted to delegate that and empower someone else, empower the group as a whole to be able to take over uh, from my leadership. And I remember the first week that I was no longer the leader. Some others were kind of uh, starting to pick up that mantle. Uh, and I was just trying to assimilate to be a, a normal m- member of this group. Which even, even that can be done in like a, I'm letting you guys lead, you know, and it's still this secret, like I'm the leader and everyone knows it. And I'm, it's almost getting more power. I've seen that done, like even getting more power. So like what you're talking about is in like a different way of like, I'm literally not going to be leading this thing anymore. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, there's so many different nuanced ways that that these things can play out. Looking back on, I think I was actually pretty good about really wanting to, to give up that mantle. I think I really did want to pass the the power on to others. But I I didn't realize how much of a, a problem it had been until in one of the first meetings, I remember one of the young women in our group 
someone had asked a question, you know, it's kind of a, a discussion question around the Bible. And she volunteered her response and shared her reflections. And I remember as soon as she was kind of reaching the end of her sentence, she looked at me and kind of held eye contact with me. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh no, I'm not the leader of this group. I'm just trying to be another member of this group. But I have somehow established over the past year or so that I am the authority. And and this young woman was looking to me for approval because I had so solidified myself as the one, you know, with the, the biblical answer on things or, you know, the theological expert in the room that she was not free to share her own response without looking to me to essentially gain consent and approval as the recognized authority in the room, even though that was no longer, you know, my position, even if whether or not it ever was to her, I had established a social dynamic so thoroughly that she was not free to communicate her own feelings apart from my perceived authority. And that set me off on this whole journey, honestly, of realizing, wow, okay, I wasn't there in that group to gain power over this group of people, at least not consciously. Looking back, I realized, oh yeah, actually, having the religious power to gain respect from people by seeming like the smart guy in the room, that's a really tempting thing to do. And I think I gave into that quite a bit. But that wasn't overtly why I started the group. I was doing this because I thought it was a good thing to do to love people and, you know, the good Christian, Christian thing. But I had realized afterwards I had completely dismissed and ignored the massive power differential in that group. And because I had ignored it, and I had refused to recognize that I had positioned myself in a place where I had way more power than anyone in the room. Because I had done that, I therefore hadn't done anything to counteract that power differential. So over the last few years, I've realized, okay, I can recognize there are many rooms that I step into where I still have the most authority in that room. But if I sit there and I recognize it, and I admit that I have a lot of authority. Some of this authority I'm really tempted to hold on to. Some of it I don't want to hold on to at all. But I recognize that that's the reality. A whole new world of opportunity opens up to me, which is I actually have the opportunity to give away this power. I actually have the opportunity to pass power to others in this space through various techniques and strategies, which we can get into. But it's, it's actually possible to relinquish power and give away social power. It's not possible at all accidentally. This is never something that will accidentally happen. If we just basically allow natural forces to run their gamut, we will all be trying to be the most powerful person we can possibly be in every given situation. This has to be an intentional countercultural effort to give away what is, you could say it this way, rightfully ours, at least in the social you know, stratosphere that we're living in. We can hold on to it if we want to for better or for worse. But there is the possibility that we could give it away. Well, because let's be honest, like when that person looks at you and there's like that oh, I'm in charge here. Like, I'm the authority, I'm the leader in the room. That feels good. It does, it really actually does feel good. But then, like, what I was thinking about too, being in some of the, I'm definitely not nearly as smart as you, but like, I've been that leader in the room, been the pastor, been the whatever. And when they look at you or they're they're sharing or they're talking, there's that scary moment when you realize, like, they're just potentially saying what, like, they're supposed to say. They're saying what like is agreed upon by this church or this group or whatever, or what I will approve of to say. And that gets like, that gets pretty scary. So I guess my next question is like, is this just something that we feel like is the way it should be and leveling the playing field kind of a thing, modern ethic, or is this part of like the story of the Bible that we are called to be a part of? Yeah, totally. And this um, I'm just so passionate about. Uh, I actually wrote a paper recently on uh, the letter to Philemon and uh, 
and an ethic in Paul through and through of relinquishing social power. And so we won't have time to get into to much of it. So if you're interested, go through the show notes and you can find that, that paper. But the crux of it was that, you know, we talked about last time how Jesus fulfilled this motif of this Messiah ben Joseph, this figure who would, rather than seeking to seize power, would actually relinquish his own power. And through that self-sacrificial relinquishing of power for the sake of others, would win the right to have power in the first place. So in Jesus, we see this dynamic that it's not those who want power that are worthy of it. It's those who refuse power that are worthy of it. It's exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, those who try to save their lives will lose it, but those who give up their lives will save it. So Jesus did that. He lived it. He enacted it. And there's just a natural, logical, ethical response that we should follow Christ's example. How does that save your life, though? So, it's, it's a longer question, and, it, and it's playing with time a little bit. But what Jesus is doing is, so, he's the first resurrected human. He's the first human to conquer death and to pioneer life beyond death, okay? That's, uh, I'm not making that up, that's New Testament language. R- remember when I said, the, the reason I think there's a value in distinguishing these two Messiah figures before we lump them together is that there's an A and then B ordering to things. Jesus said, I'm going to do the Joseph thing. I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to refuse to defend myself. And I'm going to prove that I have zero addiction to power whatsoever. And then, only then, only afterwards, subsequent to that proof, will I be granted all the power in the kingdom, okay? That A and then B is absolutely essential to Christianity. What Jesus is saying is that this life here and now is mostly A. It's mostly an opportunity to to suffer well. We mostly, especially the Jews under the Roman Empire, will have very little power in this life. And actually, Jesus' message here applies to most people throughout most history. I mean, think about the African-American slaves. For generations, they had no legitimate hope of power in this society. Their only hope was to suffer well with dignity, with honor, and in the next life— in eternity, they would be granted glory in response to their suffering. They would be vindicated over their slaveholders as the truly righteous ones who would then be given the power that their slaveholders were wrongfully trying to claim in the first place and that the slaveholders would lose (laughs) in eternity, the slaves would gain. The idea was for most people, this life is mostly suffering. That's not how it's intended to be. That's just reality. That is just nature for most people. What Jesus was saying was that it's not those who have power now who will inherit eternal life. It's actually those who are willing to accept their powerlessness, not as a matter of fate, but as a matter of hope and faith and obedience. And, and we'll get into what this actually looks like in a second because it's not just submission and subservience. But to those who are willing to, to give up and lay down their power now, they would be given all power in the life to come. That's a, truly at the heart of Christian theology. You look at the book of Revelation, that's the main theme in the book of Revelation, written to a group of people who are suffering immensely. You look at the letters to the churches, what's the one idea that is repeated through every one of the letters to the churches? It's, if you persevere... The assumption is you are suffering. You are being oppressed. You are powerless. If you persevere, then you will be granted the opportunity to reign with Christ. If you do A now, B will be given to you later. And the implication is that if you try to do B now at the expense of other people, you will not be given B later. You will not be given power in this life and power in the next. I think the problem comes in, and this is my whole life essentially, is I didn't, I don't know what to do 
with those verses because I am the powerful. Um, and if you're, you know, <laughs> middle class, if you're white, if you're a man, if you're straight, you are the powerful. And this has been the case for a few hundred years in this country. And so I think what ended up happening was that theologies developed because we didn't know what to do with having the power and also wanting to be like on God's side. We developed theologies that included ourselves in those that were quote unquote saved, whatever that means. And this is where any study of slavery in America, you have the slaveholders essentially using their theology to enact more oppression against those that were enslaved. So I feel like what has changed now is that no person holding that theology today that still says the powerful can be saved somehow um, without giving up their power, no one holding that today would agree with slavery or endorse that. But the theology hasn't necessarily changed, right? So like the theology is the same, and that's what concerns me is, and this is where we start getting into atonement and things like that. It feels like the theology, the things that we're believing at the at the top of the stream, there's the stream again, haven't changed. We're just saying, but well, we're not going to do slavery at the end anymore. We're not going to, you know, that one's bad. But we're doing it in other ways now, right? Yeah, I mean, we're going to do a, a deeper dive a few weeks down the road on uh, the history of the church and how we got here, especially in evangelicalism. But it's worth stopping just to point out, as you said, Nate, right here, that uh, the history of America and American Christianity, which is the history of white evangelicalism, is that certain interpretations of the Christian story and Christian ethics were invented specifically to support the institution of slavery. They're invented by the so-called theologians and so-called pastors of early America as a tool to reinforce the status quo of imported Africans. And one of the central ways that this occurred was basically the creation of a theology of saving souls. You know, if, if you've ever encountered uh, Charles Spurgeon's soul winner or any of that language, it's still ripe today. I mean, Billy Graham's funeral just happened today. You know, if, if there's one theological idea that marked Billy Graham's life and his ministry, it was the theology of saving souls, not bodies and not persons, but souls. And that idea literally goes back to the early decades of American society built on slavery. And it was an invention created specifically in order to create a religion of the docile, a religion that would make slaves subservient and submissive to their masters. And so what it was was a separation of systems and politics from souls. So Christianity was about saving souls and had nothing to say with systems and politics and ways of arranging people and bodies. And so what it meant, therefore, was that a slave could be saved in the sense that his soul would now go to heaven rather than hell, and that the slave's reaction to that salvation was meant to be one of grateful submission. I think one of the most important books I've read in a long time is called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram Kendi. This book traces the history through original letters and texts, and it shows that slaveholders actually refused to share Christianity with their slaves for many decades in early American society because they actually believed that the slaves getting a hold of the gospel was something dangerous. It could potentially lead to an uprising. And so they refused to evangelize. And it wasn't until the invention of an interpretation of Christianity which limited salvation to the salvation of souls in a kind of afterlife existence that didn't affect this life here and now, that slaveholders actually got together and agreed, listen, this actually not only won't be dangerous, this will be one of the best tools we have to maintaining our power over the slaves. So they actually, there was this turn of events where 
slaveholders started evangelizing their slaves. They wanted as many of them to buy into this interpretation of Christianity as possible because it actually led to the docile subservience of slaves. Now, of course, there are all sorts of exceptions to this, and, uh, and many of the slaves saw right through this scheme. But the idea is so important because it is the grandfather of the evangelical theology that most of us have grown up in today. And the entire basis was creating an interpretation of Jesus and specifically the atonement that reinforced an idea that the powerless should submit to the powerful and the powerful should maintain their power in society, that status quo should be protected. This was the beginning of what still exists today is the evangelical right in American society holding on to the status quo, the thing to be conserved as the Christian ideal that somehow the gospel is reinforcing essentially the white man's power in society. This is part of our history, is part of our evangelical roots. And part of what I'm so passionate about getting back to the Bible is that this is actually completely antithetical to Paul's ethics of power. I know in today's progressive circles, so many people really struggle with Paul for a number of different reasons. But it's worth saying that Paul actually is one of the best antidotes we know of today to the kind of power dynamics and abuse of power that we see in the church and in culture and all around us. You know, I think some of the things you said were pretty blatant and would be easy to see and say like, oh yeah, that's that's wrong. I don't want to be part of that. But this is largely the beliefs and the theology that are being perpetuated by the majority church in America right now. So what is this actually going to sound like when you hear it in church? What's this actually going to sound like when it's coming from the leaders and when it's coming from the coalitions and the, the denomination? Like what's this actually going to sound like practically? So the, the theological idea which we have inherited is essentially the foundation of what many of us have, have likely experienced, which is this battle between social justice or the so-called social gospel and the true gospel. You know, if any of you have experienced this kind of war between those who care about social justice and correcting systems and getting involved in large-scale projects and those who want to say that that has little to do with the gospel, the gospel is essentially about people being forgiven of their sins and going to heaven. The gospel is a spiritual thing Social justice is, you know, essentially a secular project. That entire argument is literally the grandchild of slaveholder religion. That entire battle is a construct that has been manufactured by those who want to create a Christian theology that preserves the status quo of white supremacy. So the second piece of this is, as I said, Jesus's life is an obvious example, and it implies very particular ethical responses. But he's also very clear. An example in Matthew 20, the disciples are arguing about power and who's going to have power underneath Jesus. And he establishes what I think is actually the center of Paul's ethics when it comes to power. Jesus says to the disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So right here, Jesus very clearly uses the example of his life and connects that to a very clear command of an ethical paradigm that is to guide the church, that opposite to the way that the world seeks to have power over others in the church to follow Jesus is to seek to give away power and to be under others as an empowerer. And I think what this did, and again, you can read the paper if you want more details on this. What this did is it instilled in Paul a two-way ethic, just as there have been these two threads that run throughout the entire Bible about power as a positive and power as a negative, Paul has a two-way ethic that applies to the powerful and the powerless. And to the powerful, for example, like 
Philemon, the slaveholder, Paul very clearly says that if you are not willing to relinquish your power over your slave, who is not your slave, who is actually your brother, and to treat him as an equal, that your faith is actually inactive. Your faith is not working. Essentially, this is Paul's sort of subtle way of saying, if you actually want to hold on to your right to be a slaveholder, you are actually not following Jesus. The call to you as a slaveholder is clear. You have power over another. You need to lay it down, get rid of it, give it up, empower your brother to be your equal. And this runs all the way through all the various dynamics of power. Paul talks to parents in regard to their children and husbands in regard to their wives, elders in regard to the church, all sorts of different positions. And Paul looks at the person in power and he essentially applies the same consistent ethic. Your task in following Jesus is to relinquish your social power over others for the good of the community. The problem is that in the history of the church, especially in evangelicalism these days, that ethic has been distorted to actually say that the person in religious power, your lead pastor, your denominational head, he's untouchable. Don't question him. Don't make him look bad. Don't do anything that would call him into question. And yet, women who are being abused by their husbands, victims of abuse, people who are powerless and stuck in situations of harm and oppression, you're supposed to submit You're supposed to stay loyal and faithful. You're supposed to be subservient. And I'll just say that that idea has far more to do with the invention of a slaveholder religion in early American society meant to keep powerless slaves subservient to their empowered masters than it has anything to do with a New Testament ethic of following Jesus. And gosh, there's just so much more we could say here and so much more we will say in future episodes. This stuff is really important to us. But let's just summarize. We're talking about a Christian ethic of power. What it means to follow Jesus is to relinquish our power over others the way that Christ laid down his power. And it is through this choice to give up our power, to empower others, that we not only prove ourselves worthy of holding great power in the future, but we also develop within ourselves the capacity to hold such power without using it for evil. But just as there are two sides to the story about power that runs through the Bible, there are two sides to how this consistent ethic is applied to those who have power and those who are powerless. To those who have power, what it looks like to follow Jesus is what it looked like for the rich young ruler or for Zacchaeus. It is sacrificial It requires an intentional, willful decision to give away power, and it costs. It hurts. To those who are powerless, to the victimized, the marginalized, the oppressed, the abused, to follow Jesus is not just to lay down and allow yourself to be run over, to be hurt, to be abused. As Paul said to the slaves, if you can gain your freedom, be free. There is a Christian ethic of resistance and a pursuit of liberation. But what it means to follow Jesus within that pursuit is to refuse to use the means of power that are being used against you. It is to refuse to use violence in your pursuit of liberation. In short, it's to refuse to use the mechanisms that your oppressor is using to oppress you. It's this ethic that I think is beautiful and good and works and is worth holding on to and it's worth going back to the Bible for. Yeah, and this is literally what our whole next episode is going to be about is talking about we're all about getting back to the top of the stream and seeing where our theology from the top where it's actually leading and what we care about is that it leads to beautiful things and not to harmful and hurtful things and so there's this view of the atonement which is very very high level top of the stream um, theology that says that God took out his wrath on Jesus, and Jesus was was the victim of that wrath in order to save souls. We talked about that form of salvation. Um, but this, this view um, basically has the Father as the, the one inflicting this, and Jesus is the one taking this. And this is where you continue to get this 
this idea that those that are being uh, oppressed need to just keep taking that oppression because we have that example in Jesus. Instead of Jesus being the one that is giving up his power, he's willfully doing this. It's not the Father inflicting anything on him. It's him willfully giving up his life, giving up his power. Um, And that's what we're going to talk about next week as we get into atonement. We'll bring on a guest. Uh, wonderful guest. So excited for you all to hear him. And if this is helpful at all to you, um, we're just doing this show to to help people and to have these conversations and that maybe you don't have a place to have these conversations. We want to have those conversations here. We want to invite you into this journey along with us. And if this has been helpful for you, uh, the way the iTunes, the way the whole podcast thing works is um, people, if they leave reviews, more people find the show. And so if this has been helpful, we'd love for you to jump on iTunes, leave a review there because that will help more people see this show and potentially be able to join in this conversation as well. Thanks for coming along with us. We'll see you all next week. Pretty mark upon her back